All right, guys. Well, we're drawing near to a close when it comes to this biblical leadership series. And before we finish, I want to make sure I give you you at least one concise lesson on uh, the discipleship process, kind of overall. The goal of biblical leadership largely has to do with discipleship. We learned that way back near the beginning of this study, where the mission of all Christians, especially the leader, is to make disciples, right? Make disciples of all the nations. That's what we're trying to do here in the church. This is not just a social club. We're not trying to just keep people entertained or give them some sense of community in life. We're a people with a mission. It's a mission given to us by the Lord himself, and that is to make disciples. Now, that being said, don't you think you should like know what that means? You should have that squarely figured out. You know exactly what that means. You know what that looks like. You know how to do it. A new believer comes into your life. I know exactly what I need to do to disciple this person, to be their discipler. Could you say that? Probably, like I said, you probably should figure that out, especially if you aspire to leadership in the church. You probably want to get this whole discipleship thing squared away, especially since it's so fundamental and foundational to leadership. And that's what I want to help you with tonight. We've talked a lot about the various aspects of discipleship throughout this whole series. So a lot of this won't necessarily sound new, but we've never coalesced the discipleship task into simple terms. We've not pulled it all together in a practical way. And that's what we want to do now, give you a bit of a practical overview of what it makes or what it, what it takes rather to make a disciple, what it means, what it looks like, how you do it. That's kind of boil it down to some, some steps. Now, don't get me wrong. The discipleship process is not always some step-by-step formulaic process. It's often much more organic. It's life on life. But you know, these steps will help you think through how you can grow in being a disciple maker yourself. So let's start with the basic reminder of the key text, Matthew 28. You can turn there. Uh, let's do that together, Matthew 28. Great Commission passage. 19 through 20. We'll largely just be in the Gospels this evening anyway, so stay close to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's 28. And I'll read as you're turning, as you're getting there, I'll just get us started. Matthew 28, 19. Great commission where Christ said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this should be a review for you guys. What's the main command? Make disciples. Yep, you're all getting that right this time. And this command is further explained by three participles. What are those? Say again, Kimmer. Going, baptizing, teaching. Yeah, very good. Those all really modify and help explain what it means to make disciples. Making disciples is not passive, but active. It requires you to go out into the world so that the first word go, it's not actually a command in the Greek. It's not an imperative. It's a participle. It really is saying having gone, actually. But it requires going out into the world, reaching the lost. It begins with evangelism. It does not end with evangelism. That's really just the beginning. Then when a person comes to believe in the gospel, next comes baptism, which really marks, formally marks the start of their Christian walk. They become his disciple. They're not really our disciple. They're his disciple. We baptize them in his name. And then comes teaching, that third element. And that's the continual lifelong uh, element to discipleship, teaching them the way of Christ. This teaching involves a lot of knowledge, but it's not just knowledge. It's not enough to know the way of the Lord. 
They must also observe it, observe the way of Christ. And so this is helping them walk the walk. And we studied this passage quite a bit and other related discipleship passages, but we're going to go further now and just try and practically break down this third element, you know, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That That's the shortest of snapshots of discipleship. How do you do that? What does that really look like? Are we just to get every new disciple into a classroom and just make it all classroom or, or not? And like, what does it look like? Just practically, how, how do you do that part? Someone has come, they've believed, they've been baptized. That, that last element, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. How long do we do that for? What's the goal? Just, let's get, you know, you know, we're in the how-to practical side of this study. So let's just try and give it a little, little more practical, helpful terms. And to do this, I'm going to draw on another useful resource. And kind of like I did last week, this is going to come from, at least the outline for this will come from a classic book called The Master Plan of Evangelism of Robert E. Coleman. Back in 2007, I was being discipled by my pastor and he walked through this, walked me through this book. And it's all about Christ, the master's plan of reaching the world. And it's really it's called the Master Plan of Evangelism. The book is really all about discipleship, you know, that, that third element of making disciples. And Jesus surely intended for his gospel to reach the ends of the earth. But what was his strategy for bringing that about? He could have just employed the angels and just said, angels, you're going to go and just from the heavens, preach the gospel, just continually loop around the world and just continually preach the gospel. I guess he could have done that, but that was not his chosen strategy for reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel. His strategy was not, likewise, not for himself to do all the work. He was not going to stay for thousands of years, just, you know, I'll make it to North America eventually and down to Australia. He was not going to be the, the one and only preacher or minister or evangelist or discipler. His strategy was through discipleship. He was going to completely invest himself in just 12 disciples. They were going to then do the work. They were going to carry on the work of reaching the ends of the earth with his gospel. But like the work, even, even, even the 12, the work was too big for them. 12, even, even 12 is not enough. Many more were going to be needed. So it was imperative for Christ to raise up 12 disciples to carry on his work. But more than that, they had to likewise be disciple makers to do exactly what he was going to do, find others make them disciples, make them disciple makers, and the chain goes on. And, and well, here we are a couple thousand years later as a result of Christ, the master's plan of evangelism and discipleship. In reality, the whole idea behind the command, make disciples, comes from Christ himself, right? Wouldn't you agree? And he modeled what he meant by this in his three years of interaction with the twelve. And we understand that much of what Jesus did with his 12 disciples pertained to a unique time, place, culture, and geography. But there are many key principles we can discern and apply in our own work of making disciples. And so we want to do that now with our time, Lesson 15, How to Disciple. And just for the sake of an outline, we're going to draw on Coleman's eight steps in the discipleship process. And hopefully some helpful ways to think about how do I disciple? Where, how do I start? So let's, let's start. Number one, selection. The first step being selection. And of course, the work of discipleship starts with well, selecting disciples. You have to select disciples. Before Jesus did any public teaching or any public ministry, 
He had already selected and set apart some men to follow him in a special way. And from the very beginning, he had in mind the goal of reproducing himself, of making a, a complete disciple. And so you read John 1, 35 and following, you see various episodes of Christ calling disciples very early on from Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, so on. Now look, when people come to faith in Christ, they all need discipleship. We're not going to turn people away from basic discipleship, of course. Every believer needs to be discipled, but we can learn from Jesus principles of selection that are especially helpful in leadership, because again, we're coming at this from the perspective of biblical leadership, where you're really looking for committed disciples, someone that you're going to really invest in. So how did Jesus choose these men that he was going to deeply invest in? He had many layers of disciples, right? The 70, there were even more that followed him, but he clearly selected 12 to be like the main disciples because he wanted a greater impact. As leaders, you can't deeply invest in everyone. And if you're going to make an impact like Jesus, you would be better served to select a few and heavily invest in them and really reproduce yourself in them as disciple makers. So then we ask, what makes for a special disciple who's worth really deeply investing in? And first you notice Jesus did not choose any disciples from the rich and the powerful of the world. None were priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Not to say that you can't have a wealthy or prominent member of society become a disciple. We know that's not the case, but it says something that he chose common, untrained, even uneducated men, laborers, fishermen. He, he didn't require them to have worldly acclaim. They didn't have to have a bachelor degree or you know, graduate high school. He, he had no worldly requirements. They didn't have to have a special knowledge or training or rabbinical training. They didn't require that. All of that stuff could be imparted to them, all that they needed. What did he require then? What I heard from back when I was in college kind of stuck with me. He just wanted them to be fat, faithful, available, teachable. And it sticks with you, right? It stuck with me for 10 plus years now. You look for fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. Faithful, those, they were, they were committed to Christ and his kingdom. They believed in him as the Messiah. They were available. They were ready and willing to, to go, to give up their lives into discipleship, to be discipled. Faithful, available, and teachable. They were like empty vessels. They knew they had much to learn. They were eager to learn and grow. That They were humble. Well, sometimes at least they were humble. But they, they all, overall, though, were teachable. They could be molded. Even if it came through brokenness like Peter, they could learn lessons. The disciples were men of true faith. They were all true believers. They were looking for the Messiah. They were believers in God, minus Judas, as you know. They had hearts of clay, not stone, and and Jesus could work with them to mold them into his image. Those who are spiritually proud, they're no good. They they don't think they need to learn anything. You can't do anything with those people. Now, speaking of numbers, Jesus had, like I said, many disciples. There were the 70 whom he sent out to preach at one time. But in the middle of his second year, that's when he formally narrowed down all the people that were following him to 12. It didn't take place till the middle of his second year. You just, you're now the 12. And for the second half of his ministry, he would give the vast majority of his time and attention to those 12. 
You can read Luke 6, 13 through 16. That's the calling of the 12. And as time went on, he would spend less time with outsiders and more time with them. And even among the 12, Christ made another selection, didn't he? He had an inner circle. Among the 12, who was the inner circle? Peter, James, and John, you all know. Why did he do this? Why did he narrow to the 12 and even to the three? Why did, why did he do this? Why narrow to the 12? Okay, they were faithful, available, and teachable. But, what, but what, what's this? Why not, why not just do all that with the 70? Everything you do with the 12, why not with the 70? Okay, the, the 12 set themselves apart as, as leaders of men. Yeah, there's a time and intimacy. You can't really be personally involved with 70 people when you think about it. There's just a limit to those little one-on-one conversations after he multiplied the bread and like, can you explain that to us in, a, in an intimate setting? You can't really do that with a group of 70. It's, it's kind of an obvious principle, but the more you want to deeply train someone, the more personal time you need to spend with them. And we're just, we're we're limited by time and space, and Christ in his incarnation was limited by time and space, and can only personally interact with so many people. We're going to see as this study goes on tonight that a lot of his discipleship was not taught, but caught just by living life with him, and he could only really effectively share that life, that daily life with so many people. And you know, I guess you could say in a sense, people are like Polaroids. The more they're exposed, the greater the image becomes. And so the more they're exposed to Christ, the, the greater his image they reflect. And if you want to make a deep impact and really multiply yourself as a disciple maker, it's better to invest yourself in a, deeply in a few than broadly in many. Not to say there's not times for a broad and, you know, Sunday mornings, that's, that's broad discipleship, right? But really effective in discipleship and leader training and, and disciple reproduction, you want to go the rifle approach, not the shotgun approach. Jesus, recall, he was going to stake his entire ministry on the 12. But if they could be trained up to be like him, more or less, it would pay dividends. And, and he knew this, and so he just was going to go all in on the 12. And even as the crowds, they started to leave Jesus, he didn't fret. He had his 12. And it was, he was going all in, the 12. He still ministered to the crowds. He still ministered to other disciples here and there, shared his time. But again, the second half of his ministry, the bulk went to the 12. And so the principle of selection for us, especially as you are engaged in leadership and looking to reproduce yourself to make a disciple, even a disciple maker, looking for those who share key qualities, faithful, available, teachable, uh, godly character, and, uh, and narrow your focus to make a deep impact. That'll become clearer uh, why that's so important as we go on at, when it comes to, well, how to disciple. So let's bring in a second step, association. First, selection. Second, association. What is discipleship about? It's all about imparting Christ-likeness. When you say that, that's a way to put it, imparting Christ-likeness. And as I alluded to, much of this imparting of Christ-likeness, it's not just taught, it's caught. When Jesus called the disciples, he did not call them to attend a seminar, to participate in a program, to go through a, a 12-step plan with him. 
he called him just like, follow me. Just, just come with me. Come live life with me. Just follow me around. Watch me teach. Watch me heal that guy. Just, just follow me. Now, this is not to say there would not be plenty of teaching time, instruction time. You might say like classroom time. Yeah, there, there is plenty of that. But so much of discipleship concerns how to live life following Christ. And Jesus was going to teach his disciples a lot of that just by having them, well, live life literally following Christ. And this is the principle of association in discipleship. There's such a thing as corporate discipleship, the the one on many. Like I said, that's like Sunday morning. It would not be wrong to to call the the Sunday morning preaching of the word corporate discipleship. Sure. But personal discipleship is a critical component in, especially in leader training and biblical leadership. You need personal discipleship. And that requires a smaller, more intimate group. You can't have personal discipleship from afar. And that there's a need for personal discipleship, especially when training up leaders, training up the next generation of disciple makers. And so for this reason, Jesus had his disciples, especially the 12, follow him around personally and just live life with him. They walked with him, talked with him, had meals together. They observed him for long stretches. This was ministry in the school of life. And Jesus knew that oftentimes impactful teaching moments don't take place in the classroom, but like as you're doing ministry, you're going on that short-term mission trip with your pastor. You run into that challenge. You don't know what to do, but you watch him respond. You're learning. That, that's discipleship. That's by, by association. You're learning how to live as a Christian. So he was happy to have them learn from how he handled all sorts of situations. So just think, what were some of the things the disciples would have learned just by being with Christ in daily life, daily events, just watching him live? What were some of the things they would have gleaned just by association, as you recall, their their time with him? Okay, what about the Samaritan woman? Okay, so there's a good, perfect example that they would learn from him. Who really is my neighbor? Just the Jew, the Gentile, the Samaritan. They're going to learn that from him. Very good. What else? You say pray? Yeah, I mean, the, the prayer life, especially in Luke's gospel, the prayer life of Jesus. He just prayed, prayed and prayed, and they just saw him pray. So much so, they finally became exasperated and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they, they realized we don't, we don't pray like that. We don't pray like you. We don't have prayer all-nighters. We're not praying a, a 24-hour prayer session before big decisions. You know that they were convicted just by his example of prayer. Good. Maybe a few others. Think of anything else? What they would just catch by watching him. Yeah, exactly. There's John 13, just how to serve, sacrificially serve, be a humble servant of others. And you'd see there a heart of compassion. The more you think about it, you could make a long, long list. How to pray, how to teach the masses, how to interact, how to deal with doubters or 
or uh, we might say today, haters, how to interact with people, answer questions, how to have compassion on the lost and the weak, when to confront the proud and the wicked, the value of little ones, the least of these, how to suffer righteously, not exacting revenge. Like the list really goes on. They could have learned, and they did learn a ton just by living life with him. And not surprisingly, as time went on, Jesus took his 12 on secluded trips just for more association, more just life on life. Just you and me, guys, we're going to go and spend time together, a little retreat, you might say. They're going to really have an amplified time of association. And think about all that's not written in Scripture, all the meals they had together, what discussions were had, how they just watch him live and act and, and interact with others. It's amazing. But you see in Mark 7, 24, they go off on a trip to Tyre and Sidon. Mark 7, 31, to the Decapolis. Mark 8, 10, to Dalmanutha. Mark 8, 27, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Mark 10, several months in Perea, east of the Jordan. This is all in the latter half of his ministry, and he's just, let's go away for a little while. Let's leave Galilee. Let's leave Judea and all the ministry to the masses. Let's just go away. And he did that. A lot of that's not recorded. Like, what happened there? We have no idea in a lot of cases. The several months in Perea, like, what'd they do? It's not recorded. Well, we can be sure of one thing. He was, one way or another, discipling the 12. He was imparting a lot to the 12 just by, just by association. Many more, but at least just by association. During this time, Jesus still ministered to the masses, but it was largely evangelism and witnessing. But with his disciples, he was training them and preparing them to do what he was doing with them after he was gone. This was on-the-job training, and he wanted them to see all the various behind-the-scenes aspects of ministry. And so this principle of life-on-life ministry, training, discipleship, it's still quite important. We are likewise trying to impart Christ-likeness to people and Sometimes, you know, seminars and seminaries aren't always the best way. Not that we have anything against seminars and seminaries. We understand that's a place for focused theological training. There's a lot of value there. But, you know, kind of like raising children. So much is, yeah, they learn a lot. They will learn a lot in the classroom, but so much is learned just at home, observing their parents, living with their parents. They, they pick up a lot more than they're taught. Wouldn't you agree? And we want to do the same with those whom we disciple, invest time, sacrifice time just to be with them. It takes time and sacrifice. We have no call to live with disciples for three years wandering the hills of San Luis. Like that's, we understand a lot of what Christ did with the 12 was culturally conditioned. But I think you would agree that the more time you spend with a disciple or a discipler, the more you would learn to live like them, Right? the more you would learn to follow Christ like them. If a child only saw his grandfather for you know, one hour a week, practically, how much would the child really be influenced and impacted by the grandfather? Not, not that much. But if it came to be where the child had to live with the grandfather, well, then he would be thereafter massively molded and shaped by that relationship. It's kind of common sense, right? Just the more time you spend with someone, the more they're going to you're going to reflect that person. And likewise, the more time we spend with those whom we disciple, the more we will be able to impart to them. The sad thing is, 
you know, so much uh, of our discipleship relationships in the church today, it looks like, you know, an hour a week. Like, I'll give you an hour a week. And sometimes, it may be because there's just too many people. We have 70. We don't have more time. You can only do what you can with the time you have. But this where you'd go back to the selection. Maybe it's time to narrow down, focus on a few, give them more time. Disciplers need to ask, how much time are you willing to sacrifice? And disciplees need to ask, how fast do you want to grow? And the more time that can be mutually committed, you're going to see just well, more growth, more effective growth will take place. We got to keep moving here. Number three, consecration. Selection, association, consecration. And this step focuses more on the disciple. This step of consecration is all about requiring some commitment from your disciples. Because discipleship in many respects is a two-way street. You're going to pour a lot of time and energy into them. But for this relationship to bear fruit, they need to reciprocate and commit to invest time and energy as well. They've got to commit to the discipleship process. So they need to be consecrated, which is to say, set apart unto a holy purpose. They've got to commit to this whole discipleship relationship. And you recall that as Jesus went about ministering, he called people to follow him and inherit in this call as a basic commitment, right? To, to follow Jesus means you're, you're no longer going your own way and doing your own thing. You're, you're on his plan. You've got to leave your own way behind and follow Jesus on his way. But how much? Now, how far do you have to go in forsaking your old ways to follow Christ? Well, over time, Jesus made the cost of discipleship quite clear. And that he demanded well, just everything. Your whole life is demanded. He demanded total commitment. This is not a, a casual relationship, but a, a consuming new life. He gives new life, and he takes new life. He, he wants it. He wants it, you to give it back to him. He wants your life. And so you have several passages where Christ makes the call and the cost of discipleship clear. Turn to Luke 9. Look at a couple of these real quick. Time permitting, turn to Luke 9. If you're still in Matthew, you should be close enough. Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, 57 through 62. Luke strings together three little episodes of Jesus confronting people with casual discipleship versus costly discipleship. Luke 9, 57 says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. We hear that today like, oh, great, come on. But, but Christ said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He challenged this person like, you sure about that? Because if you really want to follow me, it's not always easy. It's not always time of rest. It's not an easy road. Challenge them. Verse 59 he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Some think this man really was saying, let me get my inheritance first. Then I'll come follow you when kind of I'm all set. My life is set. But either way, Christ is making clear like the call is now and the kingdom work needs to happen now. The things of the world, the concerns of this world, if you're going to be a disciple, that's no longer your main concern. Follow me. Do this work. Do it now. 
Verse 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He could discern and sense that this person was divided in their interest between, you know, I want to follow you, but I'm still really committed to my, uh, my old life, my life at home. And he confronted him saying, look, you put your hand to the plow and look back. You're not going to plow a straight line. You're going you're gonna to veer off. Your, your interests are divided. Your loyalties are divided. He's demanding total allegiance, total commitment. This is consecration in a disciple. We won't have time, but you can read Luke 14, 25 through 28. And he likewise calls on disciples to just give him everything. Count the cost. That's a passage, right? No one builds a tower without counting the cost. And count the cost. He's not looking for quick signups. You take your time. You count the cost. But once you do so, he wants to see you just push the chips all in or not. Just, and we, we're looking for disciples to likewise be consecrated come a time where they understand what's, what the cost is. Lay down the gauntlet. Present the cost of discipleship. Gain the commitment of a disciple. That's pretty essential for a meaningful discipleship relationship. Now, I can't tell you how many discipleship relationships I started as a college pastor with guys. And they, you know, I knew where it was going to go. I gave them a little bit of time, partly as a gauntlet. Like, I'll start meeting with you. It's like, you know, you're just giving a little test. But, you know, they're flaky. They're, they're not really committed. They don't value your time. They don't value time in the Word, time pursuing the Lord. And uh, so many of those relationships, I had to just end those one-on-one times. Like, I don't, I don't have time for a disciple who's not consecrated, committed. I'm going to veer that time toward this person who they want to meet three times a week. They're just chomping at the bit. I'm going to give them my time. We're limited. We can't accept the 70. We might need just 12 or even just three, Uh, but we need to look for those who are truly committed. Not that we neglect the others. We're not going to send them away or kick them out. We're going to say, you know what? You just prove yourself faithful on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. You you prove yourself faithful to the corporate discipleship the church is already dumping on you. And then you come back and we'll we'll talk again once you you prove yourself faithful. We do that all the time. Don't you think that's wise and reasonable to do? Those who are faithful with little, well, we'll give them more. And Christ did that. He, he continually confronted all of, the, all of his disciples with the, the true cost. Again, we don't have time to read, but you read John 6 after the uh, multiplication of the bread. He teaches the crowds. They just want more bread. But he starts to confront them with partly his identity. You know, I'm the bread of life. He confronts them with the cost of following him. And by the end of the chapter, it's just too much. All he has to say, he confronts these crowds. I mean, he just gained like a mega church. Everyone was following him. He was super popular. Effectively, by what he says and just being straightforward with the truth, the word, doctrine, counting the cost. By the end of the chapter, he, he turns them all away. He turns them all away. And it says in uh, John 6, verse 66, as a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These were people who, they made a little, I don't know, I might not say profession, but they were like, well, I'm going to follow this guy. I will follow him around. He's going to be my guru, my rabbi, my teacher. But by the end of John 6, they're like, 
nope, you know, we're, we're leaving. They, they left him. And Jesus, by the way, didn't go running after them. He let them all go because he knew they weren't true disciples. They were not willing to accept the cost. They still needed conversion. They're now in the category of, of just those who need evangelism. But this was in contrast to the true disciples, where thereafter he turns to the 12, John 6, 67. He says, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They were consecrated. They were, at that point, we're all in. We, we get it. We know. We're not going anywhere. Where else can we go? And that's, that's what we're looking for in a disciple as well. Someone especially that we're trying to train up to be a, a disciple maker. Jesus demanded total commitment to follow him to the end. Didn't expect perfection among his disciples because he knew they were fallen. They, they were going to blow it. So he, he knew that. He knew they lacked understanding. They weren't going to learn every lesson the first time, but he expected the commitment that they're, they're going to stay. They're going to follow. They'll repent. They'll get back up. They'll keep learning. They'll grow. And so long as they were consecrated to follow him, he knew in time they would grow in grace and knowledge and holiness and Christ-likeness. And, and so he would be patient with them. And that's a fitting model for us in discipleship. We want to be patient with people, but there's a difference between like the flake and just the, the, the struggling but super committed believer. We can work with that all day. You show me you're, you're, you're faithful, you're committed, you're, 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 you're desperately clawing to pursue the Lord, but just life is hard. Your sin struggle is hard, and we can work with that. We can give all the time in the world to that person, but, but the flake, the, the one who's not committed, uh, we, we're not going to give that time to. And so I would say is on a practical level, at some point or another, if you find yourself discipling someone or maybe having a small group, you know, walk them through Mark chapter 8. It's the classic call of discipleship. I'll read for you Mark 8, 34 through 38. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, son of man also will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Some of you might have been here back when we preached through that in Mark. Maybe even get those messages, but it's just the classic call of discipleship. And the highest, most straightforward cost of discipleship presented. All you have to do is die to yourself. That's it. Just just die. Just lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. You you die to self, old self. You, You crucify and you follow Christ. You gain a new self and a new life. You gain life back. It's all you got to do. Take up your cross, embrace his suffering, his road of rejection. Remember the cross, that's like saying, take up your electrical chair and follow me. That's, that's the image that would have been in their mind. Not like a little cute necklace, take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't talking about jewelry. Talking about take up your instrument of death and follow me. It's, not, it's pretty real. Like you're going you're gonna to die. You're going to lose your life. Some of you, even physically, but at least spiritually, you, you give up everything to follow me. 
And you, then you see who's left after that, that come to Jesus talk. Like, this is what it really means. It's not like a social club or just a thing to do. This is what it means. Then see who's left. And those who are left, you'll give them your time. You'll, you'll keep walking with them. And that's what Christ did. He found those who were left. He found those who were consecrated. And he, he took it to the next level with them. He, he poured even more of himself into them. And that, that kind of leads us to number four, impartation. A fourth step, impartation. You know, at this stage, you, you might say you've gained a small group of disciples. And they've got a long way to go. They've got a lot of room to grow. But they're genuine believers. They're in it for the long haul. You can work with that. And so now that you've kind of weeded out and you found those, you, these people, I believe, can become disciple makers even future leaders in the church. Well, that begins the work of impartation where it says the long-term work of imparting to them all that Jesus said and did, like back in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. But just think of parenting. As your kids get older, you feel compelled to impart yourself to them. It's kind of natural. We just want Perhaps a God-given instinct or drive, it, we want our kids to be like us. In many cases, it pleases us for them to be like us. And we impart to them our beliefs, our knowledge, our values, our priorities. We impart to them our problem-solving skills, our communication habits, our conflict resolution tendencies. For better or for worse, we impart to them. A lot of this takes place, like we said before, in the school of life where you know, we encounter day-to-day issues or challenges and we just we shepherd them on how to respond, how to deal with it. But here in this step with impartation, we're more concerned now with that proactive instruction. This is where the ministry of the word comes into discipleship. And at the end of the day, we're not trying to conform people to, to our image, really, but to the image of Christ. We want them to be like him. And so we're not really just trying to impart our personal preferences or our, our hobby horses. We're trying to impart to them Christ, his values, his beliefs, his knowledge. And that's found in his word. And so for this reason, in any discipleship relationship, there needs to be some time in God's word. Some habit of feeding on God's word. Having a secular book club is not enough. Meeting just for coffee is not enough. There needs to be some steady input from God's word. Now, look, this can be informal. I'm not saying you have to teach a 50-minute lesson to do discipleship, right? We can informally and mutually minister the word. I'm just trying to make clear that, that God's word, though, must have some prominent position if they are to learn all that Christ commanded, learn to do. His word is central. We've, we've touched on that in so many lessons. Don't need to repeat it. But biblical discipleship, it's going to involve teaching or imparting all that Christ commanded that's found in his word. We have to have some word content in the relationship because it's not just us. It's not just coming to us for our, our wisdom, our personality, our, our personal values, but they're trying to, to see Christ in us reflected as we lead by example, and we want to impart his word to them. There's a quick side note. Just keep in mind, you can't give away what you don't have. You can't impart to others what you don't possess. And it's on you to know 
Christ's word, to know, his, to know all that he commanded, to likewise observe it, that you can truly impart to them his word and will. And the, that's on you to grow, that you know, uh, that you can impart. Now, this impartation has, has a, a flip side to it. Number four, number five, really go back to back, two sides of the same coin. Number five is demonstration. I mean, this we mean, this is where you're imparting Christ to them. Now we're talking through your personal example. Impartation, we really more mean through the ministry of the word. But here, number five, demonstration. This is where your personal example comes into play, which we mentioned last week, right? Where a shepherd can lead the sheep, lead by example. Well, here we'll call this demonstration. Jesus was quite conscious of leaving behind an example for his disciples to follow. And this was evident all throughout his ministry. Like John 13, 15, he washed their feet. He said, I did this to leave an example that you should do also. An example of humble, sacrificial service. This, likewise, is another point we have addressed at length in other lessons. So we'll be brief here. But through demonstration... Jesus taught his disciples how to live, how to pray, how to teach, how to rebuke, how to trust God. He was a teacher who practiced what he preached. And his personal example proved to them that he was not selling them a bill of goods. He really believed all he taught and he demonstrated its value. And so when it comes to learning the way of the Lord and actually living it out, a lot of people benefit more from demonstration than explanation. More of like, you know, show me, don't tell me. How do I follow Jesus? How do I be a Christian husband or wife? Yeah, okay, you've told me what, what the Bible says, and that, that is obviously the foundation, but how do I live that out in 21st century America in this culture? Can you show me? Show me a picture. Don't we learn so much from illustrations? And you guys know, never would I speak against the value of teaching, preaching, or classroom instruction. Like, what is this right now? We're just making the point that personal demonstration goes a long way. Wouldn't you say? Personal demonstration goes a long way in just giving shape to the word's instruction, which is foundational. And by way of a personal example, I remember my first year as a pastor. I was an intern pastor. Started off, you know, we were creating the college group, leading the college group at my old church. Had a, you know, other staff, pastors and elders over me, you know, helping me, discipling me, teaching me. I remember one time the high school pastor and I were pretty close and he, someone at our church had fallen ill and was in the hospital. He was going to go visit. I had never done visitation before. I mean, it was brand new. I'd never like gone to visit someone in the hospital. Like, what do you do? What do you say? What do you say to someone who's like potentially sick and suffering and maybe going through a a massive trial? Like, there's not a seminary class on that. What do you say? And it's a perfect uh, case where a little demonstration goes a long way. He just just took me along. Like, hey, why don't you come with me? I remember it was a rainy day. Went to, I think it was St. Joe's in Burbank. Just took me along. I didn't say anything. Just along for the ride. I learned a lot. Did that several times to uh, visit people. And I, I learned a lot just by going along for the ride. And so I think you understand a lot can be learned just by demonstration. A lot of these types of things. A classroom can only go so far in those situations. It gets real in the, in the school of life. Demonstration is helpful. I find this to be the case for evangelism. Like, how do I evangelize? I can teach you. How about you just come with me and I'll show you. And by the way, 
that's a real offer. If you ever want to learn, just come. I'll take you. Take you with me. Anyway, we've learned in the past, this is the call for leaders to lead by example. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, join in following my example. 1 Peter 5.3, prove yourselves examples to the flock. Verses we've already studied, just proving this point. Now we got to try and wrap up. Number six, delegation. Number six, delegation. In discipleship, Jesus knew that his personal time with his disciples was not the end, but the means to an end. There was more work to be done, more kingdom work he had them to do. And it was always in his mind that they were not going to stay with him forever in that type of relationship. But eventually he was going to send them out, cut them loose. And like, it's your turn now to do what I just did. And so slowly but surely, he was entrusting the ministry to them. He was entrusting the work of the ministry to them. That's called delegation. And you start small, but you just, you have to eventually let them go. Let them, let them run, let them fly, give them some ministry to do. Again, this is in the context of leadership training, really making a disciple and a discipler. You eventually got to set them off, see what they can do. It was God's plan for the Messiah to not remain, but to ascend, to rule the church from heaven. Meanwhile, his disciples would carry on the work of preaching the gospel and spreading the kingdom on earth. They would be entrusted with this continual work of discipleship until he returned. And thereby, they would effectively populate the kingdom. And yeah, they wanted Jesus to stay, but that just wasn't the plan. And Christ had to prepare them for the time when he would be gone. They would bear the brunt of the work. And so to, to prepare them, he starts to delegate ministry to them. He can't do it all. He can't be the only one feeding the hungry and healing the sick or just teaching and preaching. He, it was not the plan for him to do it all. And so you see in the early part of his discipleship with the 12, he entrusts them with small duties and tasks. Basically, we would call today like deacon work. They were getting food. John 4, 2, or John chapter 4, verse 8. The, the disciples went out to gather food. Like, you guys get dinner tonight. You guys go find food. They were arranging lodging. They did some baptizing. Christ did not baptize anyone. They did the work of baptizing. But as time goes on, he, he gives them a little bit more. A little bit more. In the first year, there's no recorded example of him sending them out to teach or preach. They were just, they were watching, they were learning, they were doing small tasks. But as time drew on, especially during the third Galilean tour, he finally sent out the 12 to preach. I'm sure you all remember this. We don't have time to read it, but Mark 6, 7 through 13. Now he was going to amp up and give them a, a bigger chunk of ministry, delegate to them, see what you can do. This is going to be a big test. He sent them out. And the mission was for them to do pretty much exactly what he started to do. Preach the gospel, preach the kingdom, go to the cities of Israel. He did not send them off unprepared. He gave them, you know, briefing, instruction, told them what to expect, what to say, what to do when they're rejected. He, he prepared them. He gave them his power and authority because he was making them his representatives. They were working on his mission. And then he, he just, he let them go. You, you got you to gotta go, get out there. He delegated ministry to them because, again, he was just trying to reproduce himself in them, and the time had come. They've got to get out there, and, and they had years now of learning, 
beholding, watching him, being associated. And that was really a means to an end. And it was time. Not quite to cut him fully loose. The ascension hadn't happened yet. But get a little test, a little delegation. Later, he does that with the 70. There was another group that were, they were hanging around. And he sends the 70 out to preach as well. These were training times, testing times, delegate the work to them as part of their preparation for discipleship. Now, hand in hand with this goes number seven, supervision. So six and seven, those are back to back as well. Delegation and supervision. He didn't just assign some tasks and say, go get them and never talk to them again. Like, you're good to go now. He delegated the work of the ministry to them, but he kept tabs on them so as to evaluate them. He provided them continual feedback and instruction. And so you might recall, after sending out the 12 and the 70, later they came back and they had a debrief time. How'd it go? What'd you do? What'd you learn? How'd you, how'd you fail? What was hard? Any challenges? In Mark 6.30, at the end of Mark 6, it says the apostles after being sent out, gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. That was further training, was further discipleship. He was supervising, evaluating. Even from their failures, when things didn't go right, he would teach them a lesson. You know, that, that constructive criticism, that loving, constructive criticism. Mark nine seventeen and following, they had failed to heal a boy, And even from that failure, Christ taught them some lessons. As disciples mature and you delegate ministry to them, supervision is needed. A continual loop of just feedback, evaluation, uh, in a gracious and loving manner. And again, in my life, I was very fortunate to receive this, this type of discipleship. I was in an intense small group. And the leader made it quite clear this this group was not a final destination. This was a temporary stay for a couple of years, and he was very intent on making us disciple makers. We weren't just in a perpetual little group to hang out for 10 years and have accountability buddies. That's not a bad thing. He just was intentional, like, you're going to leave soon, and you're going to do what I'm doing. You're going to take a group of guys, have your own small group, and eventually make them disciple makers too. That's the plan. And he delegated tasks. He taught us how to teach. He had us teach in other ministries, brought back the the CDs, listened to it, gave us evaluation, feedback, and that went on and on. Just bring back reports. What'd you learn? How'd you mess up? What could could you have done better? And so on and so forth. It's all really invaluable discipleship. Just to to get, get out there, get some experience, but then have a kind of a safe place you can come back and learn from what you did. And later on, as I, that was before I became a pastor, actually, and later on in my early pastoring career as a college pastor, just about once a year that the senior pastor and the elder over me, they'd take me out to lunch and give me that, you know, evaluation. We would always go to Chevy's in Burbank, which is no longer there, sadly. It's one of my favorite Mexican restaurants. If, if you, I don't want to degrade Mexican restaurants by calling Chevy's Mexican food, but I liked it, okay? Anyway. And they'd they'd let me have it. They'd give me that review, the good, the bad, the ugly, things you're doing right, places to grow. And it was always in such a gracious, loving spirit. Never felt bad after. I I welcomed it. I accepted it because they had my best interest in mind. They were on my side. They just wanted me to grow. And I had a lot to learn. I still do. A lot of room to grow. And, but it was needed. You know, you got a young kid, he's 25, 
We've got a lot to learn. Let's, you know, evaluation is needed. He's doing the work, but let's give him some, some supervision. That's an important element of discipleship. And so for you all, as you seek to lead others, you can give them some, some tasks, some tests, and trust them with some little things. See if they're faithful. Give them evaluation in a gracious manner, some feedback. Then give them greater things. Before you let just let, make someone a teacher, you help have them help you clean up pots and pans and just see how faithful they are with the little things that come with no glory. See how they do. See if they're happy to serve the Lord when there's nothing in it for them, per se. And then over time, you entrust them with more. You supervise. You give feedback. You watch over. You oversee. You debrief. You're helping them learn. This is on-the-job training. And as you can understand, it's an essential element in reproducing a disciple, especially as time goes on and they get ready to be really sent out. In fact, as you do that over months, over years, as they grow, as they mature, prove themselves faithful, you finally get to the last step, which is just that reproduction. Number eight, reproduction. As my old discipler said, you know, the goal was to just kick us out, to make us disciple makers, and then you're kicked out. It's time to go, and it's time to do this, to do it all over again. And that is the goal. And that really leads to a perpetual chain of discipleship. Discipleship ends, we might say, not when a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's just the beginning. But it ends when they become a disciple maker of others. They make other people disciples of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, that means discipleship never really ends. It just carries on in each generation. And this was the master's plan for his church. How one could raise up 12, and 12 could, well, lead to us here. We here can trace back, even though it's lost in history, the gospel to the 12. Jesus expected his disciples to reproduce himself. And again, he knew that even the 12 was not enough to finish the work. And you realize if the work of the ministry died with the 12, if they never reproduced themselves as disciple makers, the church never would have made it out of the first century, right? It would be just gone. It's over. No one carried on the work. No one kept preaching the gospel. No one kept teaching people to observe all that Jesus commanded. And of course, in God's providence, that was never going to happen. But Jesus had work for them to do. And if the church was to carry on, and we must likewise be constantly working to reproduce ourselves, if we're going to see the work of the ministry flourish long after we're gone. So you find many verses on reproduction. Our time is up, but John fifteen sixteen, he pointed them to go and bear fruit. Matthew 13, I love that parable. 13, uh, 32, the mustard seed is such a small seed, but... Once it grows, it becomes a large tree that all the birds can flock in. And the simple point that the kingdom was, is meant to start small, but it was going to grow and become large and inclusive. And First Peter 2, that he's building a spiritual house. And he does that, though, brick by brick. We're all living stones. Just one brick at a time, this house is being built. And uh, more than the 12 were to be a part of this building. But for that to happen, they needed to reproduce themselves. So it comes back full circle, just to finish, to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And with with the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
The disciples had, after three years with Jesus, they had everything they needed. They were now ready. They were set. It was time for them to, to go. Now go and make disciples. It's your turn. They were ready. Now Jesus did the real work. He made atonement on the cross. We, we can't do that. We don't, we don't need to do that. We're just bearing witness. And that's his plan, that we would be his witnesses until he returns. That's the work. And it's, it's by ministering his gospel that we see lives transformed and disciples made. He's pleased as we partake in this work and grow his kingdom. It's on us now to carry on. This is what biblical leadership really is all about. We too have all that we need. We have the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. We have his word. We have those discipling us as well. It's now on us to rise to the task, to the occasion, and to, to follow Christ and call others to, to follow him as well as they follow us. What we need now is just more harvesters. Like Christ said in Matthew nine thirty six, he felt compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And they're out there. Just the world is out there. People are out there. God's chosen ones are out there. And it's his plan, though, for workers to rise up and then go out. Get, go out and participate in this harvest. It's God's harvest. He says it's his harvest. But he's calling on workers. He's calling on men and women to go and make disciples by preaching the gospel. That's the work we've been entrusted as well as the church. And so who will go? Who will lead? Who will disciple? This is what it looks like. And I pray after all you guys have learned, even in this room through this biblical leadership series, that you are among those in this church who answer the call. Who just rise at that next step in your discipleship and grow in yourselves being in time reproduced where you can take some people and, and make some disciples and even be a disciple maker yourselves. As biblical leaders, that's answer the call to be disciple makers. Hope that helps. Hope that gives you a little more tools to work with, a framework for understanding how do you disciple. And uh, we will end it there. So let me close in a word of prayer. We'll be done for tonight. Our gracious God, we, we praise you for your word this evening and, and all that exposes on discipleship, especially from just the example of Christ himself. He, he set the course, not just for the 12, but as his words and example is recorded in scripture, we can learn from him, from the master, what it really looks like, what it means to make a disciple. And all that we've learned tonight, I pray now we just put it into practice, first in our own lives, that through the word, we just let Christ disciple us. We need to be in his word, sitting at his feet, being devoted to the one thing necessary, and that is just Christ and his teaching. May we behold the master in action that we can just learn from him to be his disciple. At the same time, Lord, I pray you continue to raise up men and women at this church to be disciplers, disciple makers that can show others what it means to follow Christ, to live like Christ, to become like Christ. As we grow in our own lives, may that just turn around into the lives of others at this church, and on and on and on, that we can just partake in the work that Christ has given the church to do, make disciples of all the nations. May we take it seriously, be convicted, and then rise to the task, to the challenge. And at that same time, we then get the joy, 
No boasting. It's not our work, but we get the joy of just participating and being instruments in the Redeemer's hand and in building his church. That joy is ours. We, we thank you for it, Lord. And we, we pray we do this in your will and your timing and just our diligent laborers in the harvest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.